0: Welcome to our podcast from the ARK Insider. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg. My co-presenter is Tara O'Connor, the managing director of ARK, the pan-African risk consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting. And she joins us from London. The Ark Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work, and breathe African affairs. We'll be touching on some of the events that have been in the news, as well as ongoing topics of interest first though, Tara, welcome. Hello, Karen. Good to talk to you. I'm echoing a little bit because this podcast is being done out of studio, so to speak. We're on the road. More about that a little later on. But um, how are things in the UK as they emerge from lockdown?
1: Well, we are emerging from lockdown and um, I am going to take full advantage of the new reality and I'm going off out into the country for the first time this weekend. But everybody is calling it uh, doing a Dominic nowadays since uh, our Prime Minister's advisor has faced a lot of challenge having apparently broken lockdown.
0: Exactly. Yes, it will be something that will enter uh, the Oxford Dictionary, I I suspect, (laughs) doing a Dominic. Well, it's interesting because here in South Africa, the big news stories It's been about God and alcohol. There's much controversy about the opening of churches from the 1st of June, because of course, South Africa is uh, easing its lockdown. We're going into phase three. Uh, Remember, some of the first cases, though, that we saw actually emanated in the north in Limpopo following church and funeral services. So that's quite a controversial move. And some people have said that Ramaphosa, the president, has shown sign of weakness from caving into pressure from uh, conservatives, religious conservatives. Uh, But also on Monday, by the time this podcast is actually published, the ban on alcohol sales will have been eased. So you can expect a rush on bottle stores. Let's take a brief and broader look at some of the stories over the past week. The coronavirus pandemic has claimed now more than 100,000 lives in America over the past four months. It's the highest total of any country in the world.
2: About the increasing North- number of COVID-19 cases in the mining sector. gold Ashanti's Mpuneng Mine has been closed. The curfews are in
1: 100- in nearly 40 cities across so the United States following some the demonstrations. School
2: children in England.
1: The government begins to ease. Lockdown. The basic education minister, Andrew Checha says it was decided not to go ahead with the reopening of schools because so many weren't ready.
0: It's always very interesting, isn't it, to refresh one's mind about the headlines over the past week. Well, some other stories just to flag up. Whilst in the UK, there's been much news about lockdown contraventions. And of course, you've mentioned Dominic Cummings at the beginning. In Namibia, the president's been forced to admit that he hosted an event to mark the 60th anniversary of SWAPO. Apparently, 10 guests who attended were all fine. But that's not really the point, is it? It reminded me of a story where we had earlier in the lockdown period here in South Africa, where The Minister of Communications Stella Ndebeni Abrahams was forced into making an apology on national TV after social media photographs circulated of her having dinner with a prominent businessman. Now, Cyril Ramaphosa acted swiftly, he put her on special leave, and as I say, she was forced to make an apology on national TV. Moving on, another story in Kenya. Um, Tara, I was struck from a figure you fished out from the Fresh Produce Consortium of Kenya Kenya, that reported that vegetable and flower exports have recovered to about 80% of the volumes of the pre-COVID-19 market. Now,
1: 80% is quite impressive. I mean, that is very impressive. But the Kenyan agricultural sector has got great experience of actually immediately responding to crises as we so in 2007 and 2008. Kenya is actually my main story this week too, where we've actually seen uh, an extraordinary response and a massive injection of about 500 million US dollars into the economy to employ 200,000 youth to support small businesses, especially agriculture, and to speed up payments of government bills, VAT rebates and the like, uh, so that there is liquidity in the system. And then my second Second story is that as normal business resumes, the South African justice system is back at work and um, has declared Dudu Miani, the former chair of South African Airways, as a delinquent director, apparently for life in terms of the South African companies, uh, South Africa's Companies Act. Uh, Mieni was found to have uh, exceeded her authority as a non-executive chair. That's very interesting. I hadn't realized that she was actually a non-executive chair making executive decisions. Um, And she particularly interfered in a critical deal with the Emirates, Emirates Air, which could have actually brought uh, South African Airways critical revenue at a time it needed it most.
0: Interesting. And of course, Dudu Mignani's friendship uh, with former President Jacob Zuma is is still a subject of much
1: debate and discussion. And controversy I mean, it, the entire appointment was, was controversial as, uh, because of that And then I think something uh, that links to COVID-19 Is the statistic that in South Africa Unnatural deaths Which is whether from car accidents uh, Domestic violence or criminal uh, violence Has more than halved during lockdown And that's, I think, probably due to police presence The absence of alcohol sales and the very limited road traffic. And I think as South Africa resumes alcohol sales on Monday, I think the test will be to see whether national and provincial governments can use this COVID crisis to the best advantage and intervene or see it in fact as an intervention uh, to prevent a return to the carnage on the roads and alcohol-related violence and crime that unfortunately are very much the norm in South Africa. You're
0: listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen in Johannesburg and Tara O'Connor in London. The focus of our podcast continues to be how the African continent is emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic and what it means for business, trade and how we operate globally. Now we know how much we all love our cars here in South Africa in particular. It's an important status symbol much as it is a means of transport. And as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic all the projections are not surprisingly, perhaps, that new vehicle sales are expected to plummet globally. So, what's been the impact of this crisis here in sub Saharan Africa? Well, to find out, I put on my mask, got my permit, and ventured off to Kia Motors in Johannesburg. Dealerships have only recently been allowed to trade here again. No cool no sore throat, no cough. I've come to meet Gary Scott, the managing director of Kia South Africa, yes. and a man I've turned to in the past to get some insights into the African car industry. Hello. Hello. How are you? Nice to see you. I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Virtual we observe all the social distancing protocols with me a safe distance away in his office and Tara on the line from London. Hello, Gary. It's
2: Tara. Lovely to meet you.
0: Gary, we are both masked up. We are suitably separated. I imagine here in South Africa, car sales have taken a bit of a hit. What's the picture?
2: Karen, thank you very much. I think uh, any good retailer will tell you we don't know until the month is over. So typically in a full month's trade, you would see uh, most of the activity, most of the closeout in the deliveries in the last week. I think the projections are somewhere, and unfortunately it's quite a broad projection, somewhere between 30% and 50% of the corresponding month last year.
0: Wow, that's a, that's a big hit. It's a similar pattern that we're seeing in places like Kenya. I think there've been some figures that some um, Tara fished out with car sales plummeting by about forty-seven percent simply because people are not going out. Ironically, though, it's a good time as any to buy a car, isn't it? I mean, there's low interest rates, there's low few prices. Are people coming in haggling for a better deal?
2: I think that you know that, that's certainly the case. There, there's, there's an understanding that uh, prices are low. Uh, that interest rates are low, that the fuel price has gone down. But there's also an understanding that there will be price inflation. Uh, If you just look at the underlying fundamental, most of the cars sold in this country are imported. Even the cars that are locally manufactured have a very high import content Mm -hmm. in in terms of the componentry. And the RAND, I think the RAND story is well told. You know, 1396, around 14 was where we started the year and we've touched 19 during this lockdown. So the replacement cost of inventory on rubber is, is eye-watering mm-hmm. and at some point that's going to come to play and we're already seeing some manufacturers start to put up pricing just shy of double digits so never you know it's, it's, it's convenient for me to say it but i think it, it holds true there's never really been a better time to buy a new car
0: yeah of course you would say that wouldn't you <laughs> as a man who's very nearly sold me a very nice kia sportage a few years back i just wonder i mean this obviously will have an impact on the second-hand car market right people will reserve Buying a car, um, buying a new car for a few more years, and perhaps if they need a, a car, think about buying secondhand in, in the way that they might not have in the
2: past. Well, I, I, I think there's a couple of technical reasons why the used car market will always be stronger than the new. I mean, availability is simply one. So, I mean, we we make about half a million car, new cars available into the market every year, and we have a car park of twelve and a half million. So, 12, 12 million used cars have an opportunity to be sold every year. So, the healthy ratio is probably two to one. I think we've seen as much. Is at is at times 3 to 1 used to new. And I think we're running at about 2.3 now, used to new. Used will still be people are seeking value. People are buying down because of austerity measures. And your typical consumer is either going to say, I'll buy down very cheap into new uh, and I'll buy for reliability. And as soon as I can, I'll trade out of that. Or I'm going to take the newish car that I'm in and buy a used version of it. Mm-hmm to save myself some money. I think we've seen both things happen. Right now, I can tell you that the used car demand is very, very strong. People are not hesitating. They're jumping on the stock that's available and they're closing out those deals. On the new car side, probably a little bit more wait-and-see behavior.
0: It's interesting. I mean, Tara and I, we were talking, weren't we, Tara, about the impact, um, whether people will actually want to use public transport uh, and whether they will make a decision to buy a car now because of the concerns about distancing. Now, obviously, it's very different in this part of the world because we don't have the huge public transport infrastructure that you have in Europe and North America. But, you know, what were your thoughts about that, Tara?
1: There has been talk in the U.S., for example, of um, a lot of the changes that were beginning to take place where people are favouring public uh, transport being reversed by COVID, the response to COVID. And, and I think the sentiment behind it was that, um, that people don't feel safe on public transport. And I know in Kenya, for example, you're only allowed, part of the regulations are you're only allowed to have two people in a five-seated car. I wonder what you think about that fear factor as a as a driver for new
2: cars. I think, uh, you know, we have to look at the fear factor relative to our current reality, our pre-COVID reality. Uh, most of our commuters are traveling in a uh, a minibus taxi and the fear factor there would really be around safety Mm -hmm. Um, and so I I think there's there's an element of a lack of safety. The safety aspect of commuting is is an underserved need in our community, um, and 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 this would only compound that. I think what we have is we have an affordability hurdle. So your typical minibus taxi commuter is spending somewhere in the region of twelve hundred rand a month. So let's say just shy of $1, a thousand dollars, a hundred dollars, and uh, your, your typical cost of ownership on an entry level car, if you're talking repayment, insurance, and fuel, you're not going to really get below sort of 3,000 rand. I suppose the only real way to get get over that hurdle that we've seen working in the informal sector and we're exploring how to deal with this in the formal sector is ride sharing. So one, one buys and others form a sort of a lift club to to help with the cost. But, you know, three or four people benefit from coming out of that public transport into something possibly a bit more reliable, convenient, and and not more expensive.
0: It's interesting. I mean, we were talking, weren't we, Tara, about car leasing and sort of the the car leasing and the Uber model, weren't we, in terms of how that might pan out in this part of the world?
1: I have found, uh, obviously, when I travel South Africa, I use Uber an awful lot and chat to the drivers and find the most interesting ways of actually financing again, this clubbing together to finance, to buy uh, buy cars um, because they have to be of a certain standard and so on. And it's it, very imaginative. Um, are you seeing quite a lot of Uber demand becoming, uh, becoming a driver for purchasing cars?
2: I think uh, Uber is probably plateaued. I think what we've seen is that that market's become saturated and the level of um, earnings opportunity has decreased for for people that are Uber drivers. Um, and as a passenger, it is still not nearly as economical as being in a taxi. So, you know, it, it is, it's serving a different market. It's certainly not solving the public transport issue. It's more sort of, the drink-drive crowd that I think is is really using mm-hmm. that, as well as people who would ordinarily, on, under travel, like yourself, like myself, if I go to Cape Town, I'm not going to look for parking. I'm going to Uber where I'm mm-hmm. going. Um, but those are car rental customers as well. Those drivers are renting um, from car rental in order to become an Uber driver and 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 on sell their services as as a as a driver.
0: It's so interesting, isn't it? Can I just move it on a little bit and look at the whole car industry and the car manufacturing industry in sub-Saharan Africa? Because you you go to countries like Kenya, where there is a sort of a nascent, a fledgling car assembly industry. Do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic has basically stifled any possibility of expanding that market?
2: Look, I think these these decisions around manufacturing are multi-billion-dollar decisions, and they're made on they're made with a long-term horizon. I don't see anything right now that's going to scupper the current investment or that would prevent future investment. I think there are bigger challenges. I think the the challenge of of you know if we look at the automotive master plan for South Africa. Um, One of the challenges is, you know, certainly the the obvious challenge is geographic location and proximity to market. Your customer is mostly Europe. I think 35% of our exports are to Europe and that's half a world away. And remembering that your components are are, are largely imported as well. What you do need is you need a, a strong regional market and you need a strong domestic market. Regionally, our big challenge is the or so the, the slow political uh, execution on stamping out grey imports. Mm-hmm. So your grey imports of, of used cars, principally from Japan, are undercutting and undermining the demand for new cars in the region.
0: Are the grey imports, are they legal? Are these the cars that are coming, say, from Japan that are secondhand cars that they may be two or three years old and it's cheaper to buy a secondhand Japanese car than it is to buy a secondhand car from South Africa?
2: So they're not legal in this country. They're legal in, in other countries. Now, I understand that it's either the Geneva Convention or WTO, but uh, for a lot of these countries that are either landlocked or have underdeveloped ports, that they don't have roll-on, roll-off terminals, those cars are coming in through South Africa. Many of them never leave our borders. So as, as much as it's a threat to domestic or regional consumption of vehicles, it's a major, major threat in South Africa itself. Uh, Our estimation is that, I spoke earlier of 12.5 million as the car park, we believe there's at least 250,000 of these grain imports permanently in South Africa and it's illegal in South Africa. They may not be registered in South Africa and that is growing at a rate of 30,000 a year. Now, to give you some perspective on that, we are probably selling in a good market 30,000 passenger cars a month in this country. That thirty thousand passenger cars on the grain imports is a, is a month of sales being stolen from our. Wow. And I use the word stolen accurately, being stolen from domestic consumption for legitimate players, OEMs and importers who pay the taxes. Remember that forty um, percent of the of, of a new car is. Price is taxes, and that's straight to the government to to fund the manufacturing program, to fund all sorts of other programs. Um, And we're stealing from the taxpayer by allowing this to happen.
0: So for manufacturing here, we've got, in South Africa, we've got Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volkswagen, Ford, Nissan. You work for Kia. Um, Kia's not manufactured here. Do you ever imagine a time when that would happen?
2: I think, uh, you know, the Koreans are... Business people, as as are all of the other brands that you've mentioned, and. When they would look to to open a factory anywhere in the world, they would be looking to tick any number of boxes. You know what what sort of subsidies available to you know start us off. Um, what is the policy framework? What's the stability of the country? But certainly, the proximity to market is really is really the big challenge. The second one is the size of the of the mm-hmm. domestic market. So I mean to give you an idea, uh, one one factory for Kia in. Korea produces as many cars as we produce in this whole whole country, one factory, one of its for domestic factories, so they would look to scales, and and right now Kia does produce more cars outside of Korea than inside of Korea. So that, you know it's not a it's not a strategy to only be domestic, and that wouldn't make sense. They are in the USA, Mexico, India, Slovakia, three plants in China. But I think what we can say, and what's often underappreciated, is that there's a big a developing component industry in South Africa, clearly supplying. The local manufacturers and clearly supplying the aftermarket. But South Korea is a big customer. I think it's the number ten customer of automotive components out of South Africa.
1: Now I am a complete passionate person about uh, renewables and so on. You know, the rest of Africa is way ahead of South Africa in terms of renewable. Kenya produces eighty-seven percent of its energy is renewably produced. So there is the mindset of, of clean energy and all of that. And what's the next steps for the car market in that uh, kind of clean energy, etc.?
2: I think we face with two scenarios. Um, if we're going to produce cars for our main trading partner, our main export customer, which is Europe, and we know where Europe are, Europe are accelerating towards green at a rapid rate. If we're going to produce for that market out of our local factories, we won't have any domestic consumption unless policy catches up. So I think we've identified this as an industry through NAMSA, the the, the Manufacturers uh, Association. We've identified this as a major risk, not to current model life cycle but to next model life cycle we can anticipate that customers going to want at least hybrid but I think Europe's actually past hybrid going for full electric we need to create domestic consumption for that and that has to be driven by policy so where South Africa is we actually even our fuel quality is behind the fuel so I think it's one of those technology leap rocks. we're not going to catch up on the fuel in time to be relevant we're going to have to go past that failing this happening failing us having a similar energy uh, framework as, as our trading partner is. we end up becoming a backwater in terms of global trade producing only for local and, and regional consumption which uh, then makes that pillar that much more critical and important. So it's, 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 it's dangerous and it's tricky. Government has to find money to wean us off fuel and find a way to monetize the new, re, the new energy reality because petrol uh, is heavily taxed, right? Fuel consumption is heavily taxed. Inefficient engines are quite convenient from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And moving towards green is, is creating a, a plethora of, of, of challenges.
0: I never thought a conversation about cars could be so interesting and so um, animated. I have to say, Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure. Before you go, though, we have to ask you a question. It's been extraordinary times with COVID-19. Families have been affected. I mean, you've got young children. Um, We're all socially distancing. What's been the one thing that's really struck you throughout this whole time?
2: For me, it's been uh, shattering the illusion that if I had enough time on my hands, I would learn to play chess, uh, improve my level of fitness spend more time with my kids <laughs> i think i've certainly learned that uh, i'm no teacher or I-, I lack the patience to be a good teacher i've learned that my children are little humans that have their own struggle because i you know i've had to experience that at the coalface and appreciate teachers appreciate our domestic help and, and certainly reconnect with family and uh, and and my, my, my wife and kids. I think that's been that's been great. I think the other thing is that whatever life throws at us, we find a way to adapt. And I think it's become the new normal, disturbingly quickly. Um, coming back to the office, and I came back for the first time two weeks ago, felt like I was on Mars. Um, so the, this was now abnormal. It's it's beginning to feel normal again. But I think that's the adaptability of the human race is inspiration on some level
0: it's quite extraordinary isn't it gary thank you very much
1: indeed thank you very much gary and i hope uh, that uh, we can do it again
2: it'll be a great pleasure thank you tara lovely to meet you lovely to see you again karen and uh, i look forward to that next meeting
0: next time we do it without masks
2: (laughs) yes hopefully
0: you've been listening to the ark insider with me karen allen in johannesburg and tara o'connor in london thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at ARC produces a daily chronology of events, as well as reports and briefings about the region. You can sign up for these at info at Africa Risk Consulting. That's all one word dot com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and please do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Stay safe and bye
1: for now.